Welcome to the Learning Curve Podcast. I am Bob Bowden of Choice Media. My usual co-host, Kara Kandel of the Pioneer Institute, is on assignment today. Uh, I think all we can say is at a secret clandestine location of some sort of international intrigue, uh, fulfilling some sort of duties that one would associate with a Bond girl. I could say more, but it would imperil me and all of you gentle listeners. Anyway, nevertheless, it is a good time to remind you that Choice Media smartphone app is comprehensive, free, and awesome. Not only is it jam-packed every day with the education news, all the education news fit to aggregate, <laughs> but also original one-minute video commentaries posted every weekday in our Story of the Day section, and another section called Education Podcast Central. It has not only this, but all the best education news and commentary podcasts. So what do you do, you ask? You, you plaintively cry into the silence? I'll answer you. You just search Choice Media in your app store or Google Play on your phone and try it out today or even right now. All right, so in the news this week, story one comes to us from the Philadelphia Inquirer, how, the title, How One Philly High School Reveals the District's Dire Attendance Problems. This is a very well-reported story from three different reporters. Uh, and let me just read a bit of what's here. It says, We use the district's own data to uncover 26 Philly schools with appalling rates of teacher turnover. But the main story is about the attendance problems of the students. So, for example, they looked at this Edison High School. They found huge disparities between two systems. One is when the kids pass through a metal detector in the morning and swipe their school-issued ID cards at a kiosk to record themselves as present in the building. That's one way attendance is kept. But then the other way is, like when I was a kid, teachers in each classroom are saying, who's here you know, Monday, who, you know, taking attendance essentially for every class. And those two numbers are widely different. It's stunning. They, they give examples of card swipes for 22 students, for example, in October to April that they looked at, showing the students were in the school building 75% of the time, but those same students were only in class 36% of the time. This is according to the classroom attendance records. So schools are getting funded for this swiping in the building. Oh, I'm in the building, so I must be there getting educated. And they get funded on that basis. But then oftentimes the kids just leave or they roam the halls. And the news story says attendance records reviewed by the Inquirer show one senior was marked president more, present more than 90% of the time, despite going to class for only 50% of the time. And a freshman who swiped in nearly 100 days stayed for the full school day only 12 days. And, you know, huge amounts of money are involved. Uh, uh, Philadelphia is getting $213 million from the federal government for needy students, funding based partly on all this attendance data that is so widely uh, gamed, I guess would be a charitable way to describe this. And for me, this is just uh, top-down accountability 101. You know, it, it, it makes me think of the Soviet Union's Ministry of Agriculture, you know, back in the 20th century when they would have these, you know, five-year plans for their new state collective farms that were supposed to be, you know, fair and productive at unprecedented levels. What they actually led to was hunger and famine. 
And what would happen is the Soviet agriculture ministry would do things like declare the country needed more tractors and farm machines and order factories to produce a sudden massive number of, you know, new tractors. But then they wouldn't work or they'd break down. So they'd say, oh, well, we don't have enough spare parts. So they'd then order, you know, millions of people to, to be, you know, trained in uh, making and repairing the broken tractors with all the spare parts, but they wouldn't have distributed the spare parts properly. Over and over and over again with top-down accountability, you'll, you'll find some sort of big problem emerges after several years. You have some new official way that this big problem will be fixed. And all of the people along the way in these kinds of systems, the the parallel with American public education is immense uh, to the Soviet agriculture ministries. But all the people along the way are not compensated based on, to use this Soviet analogy, whether food gets created, whether people are fed. They're not compensated based on the end result, the output of the system. They're evaluated and compensated and given promotions and then job security based on just these internal metrics of do you do uh, you know, did you do this piece of our five-year plan to reduce, you know, this one aspect of a problem? And and for that, you know, they, they do it and, you know, who cares if it actually works and who cares if it's really what's needed? And ultimately, you know, the, the, the fact is, is this Edison High School in Philadelphia, I mean, the only way this school e- exists is for people there to be compensated not based on parents spending their own education savings accounts or their own voucher money on picking that school. That kind of school only exists if you compensate the participants on metrics that have nothing to do with the purpose of schools. And so that's that's my reaction. To that. Let's go to story number two. Story number two is called Rising Tide Charter Market Share and Student Achievement. This is really not so much a story, more of a report by David Griffith of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. And it's a report about when charter schools are in a city to a large extent or to a growing extent, how does that overall city do in education? In other words, it includes not just the charter school kids, but also the regular district school. Getting at this key question of, does the competition from charters drive up the quality of the district schools, or is it this narrative of draining money from the traditional system will hurt the district schools. So they wanted to look at entire cities and how they perform when there's an influx, a new influx of charters. So I asked David Griffith of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute to summarize some of the conclusions, and he told me this. We looked at the uh, overall average achievement uh, of students um, in what we call a geographic school district, um, which includes not only uh, the uh, traditional public school districts, but also any charter schools that are physically located within it, um, in, even if they are not run by the district. Uh, and so what we found was um, moving from 0% charter market share, right, having no charters, um, to a system where uh, half of the kids are enrolled in charters, um, or half of the African-American kids, rather, um, is associated with a gain of roughly three-quarters of a grade level, we estimate. Um, In other words, all African-American kids in the district, on average, are gaining about a third of a grade level, which is obviously huge. It's really the key question and cognitive dissonance plaguing all school choice critics. They believe that quality, the quality of a school system, they will argue, they'll passionately, some of them actually believe it, is a direct result of financial investment raw numbers to a district. 
So they believe that a billion dollars spent on a monopoly produces better results than any lesser amount going to a competitive system. And, and you know, this kind of says like having a second restaurant in your neighborhood will drain customers and money from the first restaurant. That will make that first restaurant worse because they'll have less money. And what we all know in our lives is that competition has the opposite effect. If you look at all kinds of things from Japanese cars coming in to compete with American cars in, in the 1970s and the American car quality improving, even though money was drained away to the Japanese competition. Uh, if, you, if you look at uh, how the post office didn't have package tracking until Federal Express provided competition, Federal Express offered package tracking, tr tracking, and then the post office figured out how to do package tracking after, yes, money revenue had drained away from the post office to competitors like FedEx, and yet they were able to perform better because of the competition, despite the fact that they had less overall revenue. The competition is a larger factor, in other words, than raw numbers of revenue. All right, the third story of the day is from the ArkansasOnline.com. They say, framework for Little Rock's school control set, limited local authority favored by school board. You know, the headline isn't really the key thing to me. The key part of it was this statement by someone on the Arkansas Board of Education, uh, this uh, Dr. Sarah Moore, who said, you know, at the end of this uh, school board meeting for Arkansas, Arkansas's, you know, uh, the, the Little Rock School Board is under control of the state right now, but they're getting close to turning it back over after a five-year period to control by the local local people in, in Little Rock. And this, Sarah Moore said, we're going to put on next month's agenda for the school board to discuss whether to uh, decertify the Education Association, basically to say to the teachers union in Little Rock, Sorry, we're no longer going to deal with you. Like, I, I thought this was kind of amazing. It's someone from a, a city like Little Rock, Arkansas, saying, yeah, we have a teacher's union. We have collective bargaining. We've done that for years that way. But we're just going to stop doing it. And I thought that was a fascinating sort of turn in how <laughs> and, and I ended up learning a lot more about Arkansas than I knew before in terms of their government's governance of of school boards. And so I spoke with Patrick Simmons. He's of the National Right to Work Foundation about this issue of Arkansas and the, you know, basically all this shouting and yelling occurred, by the way, when this, uh, when this uh, woman who was on the uh, Arkansas school board that's still run by the state, but it's the Little Rock School Board, uh, suggested, hey, maybe we're just going to stop doing collective bargaining with the teachers union. All these people were, you know, shouting and yelling at her and stuff like that. I was fascinated about it. So I called up uh, Patrick Simmons of National Right to Work, and this is what he had to say. Arkansas is one of many states where a public employer, like a school district, like the Little Rock School District, can engage in monopoly bargaining with the union um, to you know, result in a monopoly bargaining contract that applies to all teachers, members and non-members. Um, but they're not required to do so under state law. So it's, the option is, is basically up to each school district if they want to uh, bargain with the union or not. Just to clarify, so, so many states require uh, districts to collectively bargain with the union. Other states prohibit 
like Virginia and North Carolina school districts from uh, having a collective bargaining agreement with the union. But then there are a third set of states like Arkansas where it's up to the district. We They either are allowed to do a collective bargaining agreement with the union or not. And it's really the, the school board gets to decide. Is that right? Yeah, that's, that's correct. So I was uh, talking with our attorney who kind of tracks these things, um, one of our attorneys, and he was – this is sort of in the, quote, wild, wild west category is what he calls it. Um, but it is entirely up to each school district in Arkansas under uh, Arkansas law uh, whether or not to engage in uh, bargaining with a union that gets to set a monopoly bargaining contract. It does seem interesting to me that pretty much in a state like Arkansas, if the union gives a district too much trouble, the district can just decide to stop talking to them and, st- and stop acknowledging their existence. Like it does seem like a, a kind of um, a bit of a one-sided negotiation in that regard, uh, right? Well, um, I mean, yeah, I, I suppose that's true. But I, I mean, I think, you know, uh, on our, uh, our view is that the idea of monopoly bargaining in the public sector in general, uh, and especially when it comes to education, is very much uh, sort of contrary to democratic principles. I mean, sure. the, the idea that a school district uh, made up of people who are elected and accountable to voters and parents um, have to can't set public policy and education policy, but are supposed to negotiate with a private organization over how uh, students are taught um, is, uh, you know, we think that's, that's, uh, that's a problem um, in terms of the idea of, of representative government and so, um, not so the whole framework of some, special, the whole framework yeah. of some sort of parity uh, between like, well, the union does you know can't uh, fairly compete with the power of the district in a scenario where a district can just ignore a union's existence is you know to, your feeling is that's illogical to begin with that framework. Yeah, you know, the union is a private organization, and so the idea that they have some special uh, you know seat. To negotiate with government um, is contrary to the idea that voters get to hold elected officials accountable for public policy and specifically education policy and the outcomes of it. Um, and so that's why it's very different than a private sector, um, you know, because the, this, is, this is about, I mean, the education of our children, one of the most important functions that government is involved in. Um, and the idea that this third party gets to interfere with that um, is a real problem. In our Learning Curve interview, I'm now joined by Max Eden, senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute. Before joining MI, he was program manager of education policy studies at the American Enterprise Institute. He has research interests that include early education, school choice, federal education policy, et cetera. Oh, the, 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 the items, the mentions go on and on, Max. Uh, publishing in the Journal of School Choice, Encyclopedia of Education, Economics, and Finance, The Washington Post, U.S. News and World Report, National Review, et cetera. Max Eden, thanks for being my guest on The Learning Curve. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. So you... Uh, of course, have written extensively most recently on the subject of school discipline, and your new book, Why Meadow Died, was just released a couple of weeks ago, offering insights into the causes of the shooting massacre at 
Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. But before I get to the book per se, I just wanted to kind of break up the normal interview flow with news from today. And news from today that you tweeted about. So I I know that you read it. It's about a 13-year-old boy who I think nine days ago was attacked in California. His head hit a pillar during what authorities well, described as an attack by two other students at this Moreno Valley Landmark Middle School. And this 13-year-old boy has been pronounced clinically dead. Uh, it's a tragic incident, and it's made more, I don't know what you call it. It's made, in some ways, it's more shocking because there's video. There's actual video of this attack where the two other 13-year-old students, uh, one punches him in the face, the boy falls, and I, I'm almost I'm almost trembling a little reading this. But then the second boy comes up and just sucker punches the kid right into the pillar, causing what ultimately turned into brain damage and and, and death. The reason I'm at the reason I'm bringing this up is that you, uh, uh, Max Eden, quoted a story about this where the story, the news story said school administrators said the students arrested did not have any previous behavior problems, unquote. And you tweeted in response to that, bullshit, you don't go from zero to murder. There was no record of previous behavior problems. Get ready for a lot more of this in California schools. What did you mean by that? Yeah, I mean, uh, color me extremely skeptical that the two students who uh, joined forces to kill this young man truly were model students and truly had no previous behavioral problems, right? I... Uh, I'm much more inclined to believe and you know, can wait till we see more evidence that these students had behavioral problems that were not properly documented in the school, uh, which is a very consistent thing that we find when school administrators are pressured to lower suspensions, lower expulsions, lower even detentions, lower arrests, that they respond by simply not documenting misbehavior. And Governor Gavin Newsom recently signed into law a bill that makes it illegal to suspend a student for anything short of violence, which means that you know, if these students had been getting in trouble every other day, threatening the student uh, every other day, cursing at him, bullying him incessantly, uh, under current California law, they would not have a disciplinary record for that. Now, just to push back a little bit, you write you don't go from zero to murder. I think technically this would be a manslaughter more than murder, right? I don't think there's a premeditation likely of these, I mean, Right. You don't know that this was premeditated. No, I don't know. That's a, a, a little okay. Twitter speak. It's a it's a homicide. It's probably technically manslaughter. But, you know, you they definitely had an intent to uh, attack and harm. And right. only time will tell whether the intent to kill was there, regardless. Uh, you know, a little I take very little license in Twitter here and there. All right. Uh, your book, Why Meadow Died, is deep and comprehensive. I'll just obviously pick a few parts of it to ask you about. Uh, I guess just first briefly, who was Nicholas Cruz? Uh, Nicholas Cruz was uh, was the Parkland shooter. He uh, was an extremely disturbed young man. I think it would be uh, you know, reasonable to call him an evil human being. Probably so from very early on. You know, he was born to a, a crack addict mother who was in jail, uh, gets adopted by adoptive parents, was attacking kids ever since he was two years old, had to wear a restrictive harness to ride the bus 
to pre-K, was never able to last more than a few months at a time in a normal classroom at elementary school. In middle school, uh, terrorized the whole school so badly that he not only required a security escort to get uh, from point A to point B, that actually required his mother to accompany the security escorts. Teachers tried barring their doors against him uh, in the occasions when he wasn't suspended, which was half of a, of a full year, who then gets sent to a specialized school where he explains that he has uh, dreams of killing and being covered in blood. And after a few calm months there, they put him into a normal high school, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School, and because he's evinced such a preoccupation with guns, they led him into JROTC to practice shooting. Uh, in high school, his misbehavior appears to have been systematically swept under the rug until he was kicked out of the back door of the school and not allowed to come back into the uh, specialized school that he and his mother wanted him to be at. His mother died. He had uh, nothing except for his guns, which he acquired for a uh, totally clean criminal record, no support around him, and he went back to the school and murdered 17 people on February 14th, 2018. One of the major threads in the book is what the Parkland School District uh, called their Promise Program, which is their name for a restorative discipline approach to student misbehavior. And for those who don't know, restorative discipline is a philosophy in which well, many public school districts today believe in it, that student suspensions and expulsions should be reduced or even eliminated. And uh, I know that you don't say the Promise Program restorative discipline was the sole cause of why this 19-year-old Nicholas Cruz picked up his rifle and murdered, but tell us to what degree you think that contributed. Yeah, so it, it requires like a few distinctions, right? A, a lot. The school district initially said that the question of whether or not their policies played a role was, quote, fake news because the shooter had never been referred to the Promise program, nor was there a record of him committing a Promise-eligible offense while in high school, right? Um, as it turns out, he had been referred to the Promise program while in middle school. That one referral in itself wouldn't have created... Uh, enough of a record to keep him from buying a gun, but the Promise program was also kind of referred to as shorthand for the whole suite of leniency policies that the district implemented, which went beyond the Promise program, even though the Promise program allowed students to have three free misdemeanors per year before they were even allowed to talk to a law enforcement officer. Uh, and teachers, principals rather, were trained to refuse to cooperate <laughs> with law enforcement as part of the broader implementation of the in, your, in your view, is that they that they intentionally want the number the numbers to look better more than for their disciplinary referrals to reflect reality? That oh, it's ab more abso absolutely. It is more important to get the arrests down than to keep you know keep schools safe. There was a, a poll of Broward teachers. One thousand eight hundred eighty-seven teachers were polled. They were asked, "What would happen if a student assaults you?" And out of one thousand eight hundred eighty-seven. Three teachers said that they thought the student would be arrested. Seven you, thought the student would get a treat. Your book tells the story of Kim Kehoe, a teacher, if I'm pronouncing her name right, a teacher, and her reaction not just to the district's, well, incompetence regarding counseling services after the shooting, but also covering up its misstep, like not just not just poor dealing with the aftermath of the shooting, but covering up its missteps, right? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the, the Sun Sentinel, the local newspaper, ended up getting the, the Pulitzer Prize for public service for, co- for its coverage of the school district's failures, a, a story that nobody in the education media, except for you guys, nobody in the mainstream media had any interest in covering. One of their articles was titled, Hide, Spin, Deny, Threaten, <laughs> uh, a portrait of a school district like covering up things under siege. So yeah, what, what was what was the Parkland strong hashtag? Yeah, it 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 became part of the student movement in the wake of it. Right. Every, everything was hashtag Parkland strong, hashtag MST strong. And the school district uh, kind of activist groups that very quickly descended upon Parkland wanted to paint a picture of a of a strong, resilient group of students who are bravely carrying on a political battle. Uh, against the NRA, against Republicans in general, and what you know, the problem that my friend Kim had with it was that the the hashtag overrode reality. Everybody was actually suffering very greatly. They were not being cared for. Counseling and trauma services were extremely poorly delivered, and kids were suffering while they were being you know encouraged to say that they were hashtag Parkland strong, hashtag MSD strong. There couldn't have possibly been a a more profound gulf between the image that was projected, thanks in large part to the school district, and, and the reality, and the lived experiences of the students and teachers of that school. And, and, and just a little more on Cruz. In Chapter 7, you mentioned uh, another Parkland student named Hunter who told of a day that Nicholas Cruz had exploded uh, in a, without provocation, went around a classroom destroying the other classmates' model bridges and was saying... This is Cruz saying, quote, I am not mentally stable. I am effing crazy. Yo, I love to see people in pain, and I have two shotguns in my house. A mother of one of Hunter's close friends went to the school to complain about how assistant principal Morford had dismissed the threat posed by Cruz. And and so to some, this kind of thing is, and I think to you, prima facie evidence that Cruz was a, a threat but, but what about the idea to others, this is one example of thousands of students who exhibit anger at a school on a certain day, and that um, hardly any of them murder their classmates. And so such outbursts uh, are, some might argue, not predictors of murder. Only when presented in hindsight about an actual shooter, you can say, oh, look at what this, what Cruz was saying before he killed, and that uh, outbursts of anger, in other words, don't highly correlate with shooting. And so to present it as you have, some might say is, I don't know, to pretend as if it does. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, that would be a reasonable criticism in other circumstances. There's one detail that actually wasn't in the book because we only found it out in a, de- in a deposition and after the book went to print, you know. Uh, after a certain point, and I'll take a minute to portray the events leading up to this point, uh, first, before explaining it, the student had previously threatened to kill several of his classmates, uh, attacked one of them after hurling racial epithets at him. After that fight, students went to the principal's office and wrote statements saying he has brought bullets to school, he's brought knives to school, he's threatened to kill us, he threatened to rape us. We are extremely concerned that uh, if nothing is done about him, he will uh, bring a weapon to school and kill somebody potentially and check his backpack. Uh, According to another student, Cruz later told him that after the fight, they checked his backpack and found bullet casings. Now that same week, the mental health authorities were called to evaluate him three times. 
when he was uh, having a huge fight with his mom about whether or not she would let him buy a gun, uh, trying to commit suicide and writing kill at the top of his notebook. And the administrator's response to this uh, for the fight was to give him a two-day internal suspension. And after all this, they decided that he was not allowed to bring a backpack to school for fear that he would be carrying a deadly weapon. And furthermore, and this is the detail that wasn't in the book, that he would be frisked every day to search for weapons that he might use to kill people in school. They had a meeting about him and said, uh, if there's going to be anybody who's going to come to school and shoot it up, it's going to be this kid. I mean, they So, they so your view is that this is just so over. It's not just any student exhibiting anger at school should be suspected of a future murder. It's that this example was so beyond the pale that any rational person would have concluded this is a this is a special kind of problem. Yes. Staff staff said like that they had a meeting where they joked and kind of joked that he would if one person were to shoot up the school, it would be him. You can. We verify this in student Snapchats. They students knew who it was who did it before it was done, before right. it was over. And and so the, the big picture of your of of your book, the big premise is that is that these districts they more their their bigger uh, incentive is to reduce the awareness of problems with discipline. That is their their real incentive is to reduce the awareness that problems exist more than that their incentive is to handle problems properly. Is yeah. that? Yeah, that's yeah. that's exactly correct. No rational, normal, prudent human judgment would have allowed the students to skate by with a clean record for as long as he did. And also um, <clears throat> to attend a, a traditional high school. I mean, we label students with extreme emotional problems as having a, a quote unquote disability. And then the various federal, state and local pressures to educate students with disabilities and the least restrictive environment holds sway not only over students who have dyslexia, but also students who are potentially psychotic and violent. So we have these two policies that combine to push potentially dangerous students into normal classrooms and then to systematically under-record, under-report, cover up their misbehavior. Right. Now, some of the motivation I... Uh I think it's fair to say for these kinds of policies, for which California just passed a law to, to which you referred earlier. Uh, and, and I think their laws to, what is it? Is it to eliminate suspensions or something? It's, a, for, it's for anything short of violence, basically. Anything short of violence. Uh, is that uh, there's a claim that the racial imbalance in suspension and expulsion rates is the reason to... Um, drive these uh, policies forward, that uh, without policies like these, we will have uh, teachers uh, with biases that may be unconscious biases, and they will uh, immediately suspend black and brown kids uh, at a rate they would not uh, do to white kids. And that that's, I guess I'm curious to, to know your thoughts. Do, do you think that there, that that is, is, true at all or that it's not true at all uh, in other words it, it could be true to some extent and yet the solution or the uh, the uh, the the recourse for what they perceive as a problem of teacher racism and, and discipline it could be far worse than than even the problem but uh, do, do you see that as a problem to begin with yeah i think it's i think it's almost entirely false or mostly false let's say to be to be more moderate about it uh, and it's a, it's a pretty hideous argument to boot, right? I mean, academics have tried to look into the question of what role does teacher bias, can teacher bias plausibly play in these disciplinary disparities? And the harder you look, the smaller it becomes. In many 
In several studies, it, it cancels out to zero. Principals appear to treat students entirely fairly based on race. The most strongest evidence that I've ever seen that teachers treat students differently based on race is uh, if a black student has all black teachers versus all white teachers, he is about 1% less likely to get suspended in a given school year, which, you know, that's 1% more than zero. It's not nothing, but it's not uh, something that can explain the three to one, four to one racial disparities that we see in education, which are absolutely not the teacher's fault. And to argue that they are the teacher's fault is to level uh, a horrific accusation against the least racist, most compassionate professionals in America and to basically say, we just don't trust your judgment so much it's, that we will not let you assert authority, will not let you exercise control and make uh, decisions regarding consequences for student misbehavior. Is, is, is a, that racial disparity data, is that, the, uh, is that the main driver of restorative discipline policies, in your opinion? Have I framed that right? Are there other drivers to the leading uh, Gavin Newsom to sign the restorative discipline laws statewide? Are there other drivers to restorative discipline? That's the main argumentative driver, right? They also, it is also said that there is a disability disparity that has been entirely debunked by Paul Morgan at Penn State. Um, but mostly it's, you know, the argument is that this is a policy to fight racism, basically exactly as you articulated it, that, you know, teachers and schools are blamed for the disparities. And if they're at fault, it's their judgment that's at fault. And if it's their judgment that, that's at fault, they shouldn't be allowed to exercise their judgment. And You've gotten some hate, Max. Uh, uh, to your great surprise, I will announce this to you. Uh, one Twitter one Twitter writer putting it, congratulations on profiting from such a horrible tragedy you single-handedly made worse. Another person writing, Max Eden thought he had an answer to why Parkland's shooting happened. He spent months investigating with that answer as his guide. He found out things weren't as simple as he thought, but not before igniting a political conflict in a grieving community. And and finally, and I know you responded to that one, but finally I'll give you Ellen Shapiro of the New York Times who tweeted, by the way, the New York Times, the only entity I believe with employees whose opinions just should be considered facts. If you work for the New York Times and you have an opinion that should be treated as facts by the rest of us, I say sarcastically. But Eliza Shapiro writing searing story about how an NYC think tank employee with an agenda and some incomplete data helped spark a painful fight about school safety in Parkland and then eventually admitted his conclusions about why the massacre happened weren't quite right. Yeah, Did I mean, you... I, uh, well, I learned a very important lesson in uh, why one should never trust a freelance journalist who tells you that they're uh, writing for Harper's or some left-leaning publication. Uh, I made a tremendous mistake in speaking at length to a journalist, giving her enough grounds to systematically distort what I was saying and uh, this and is what a I Huffington did. Huffington Post story. Huffington Post story. Yeah, that's what that's what all these tweets are based on. Right. Um, you know the, the and when it first came out, actually, we read your response. It, it seemed like initially you weren't uh, troubled by that story. It was more what flowed. After that, is that right? Well, I found the story to be somewhat assiduously dishonest, but on its face, not that bad. The reaction to it, I think, was uh, was something that it was perhaps intended to generate. Right. That's and, what we, that's what we noticed. Uh, uh, go ahead. And and because I, I had you know friends say like, oh, I read the Huffington Post article. That was pretty interesting. That's pretty cool. You came across pretty good. 
but then kind of like the edu Twitter blob had the reaction that you just uh, articulated. And, right. you know, there, there was just like a, a profound missing piece to that story, which is the story that I found, right? It starts from me writing an op-ed saying, oh, I wonder if uh, these leniency policies had something to do with it, to my eventual conclusion that uh, it was a combination of the leniency policies and least restrictive environment. Uh, and therefore, that means that it wasn't my original hypothesis, or so it was portrayed to be and taken to be by the the leading factual minds of education. So, right. for for those who don't know, least restrictive environment meaning uh, in the in the world of special education, uh, there are uh, federal laws that require that uh, kids be uh, given the least restrictive environment possible, given their disability. And so, and and so, you argue that in some cases, emotional disturbance, which is uh, considered uh, one of the reasons a kid can be. Uh, labeled uh, as special ed uh, is are sometimes those kids are quote-unquote, mainstreamed too quickly. Yeah, and uh, and my eventual kind of policy conclusion was that it was a combination of that and the discipline question in a way that you can't really uh, extract the two to distinguish between them. That was the primary policy driver of it, which is, I think, to most people, simply a modification of an original hypothesis that's still broadly consistent with it, but it was... Uh, it was able to have been written and interpreted as me deciding that I had been wrong, I but see. only after having sparked uh, a fight or a political struggle that none of the parents who lost kids would have recognized as intelligible. <laughs> what, 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 what was to you conceding there are you know, always new layers of explanation behind a complicated scenario was interpreted by your critics as your capitulation that you were wrong? Correct. Like I thought it was I when I came down, I thought it was a when I was done, I realized that it was also B and it was probably B more than a. But you can't really separate A and B. <laughs> yeah. uh, your co-author, Andrew Pollack, is suing James and Kimberly Sneed. That's the couple who took in the shooter, Nicholas Cruz, after the shooter's mother died in late 2017. This couple, I mean, it seems like a pretty uh, sympathetic act to take in a kid whose mom had died. And uh, then uh, that kid goes on to kill a bunch of people. And so your co-author is suing the couple that gave a home to this shooter. Um, well, I'm a little puzzled by that. Are you? Uh, well, I haven't actually, I haven't looked very deeply into that aspect of it i've okay. uh did you in the news recently in the past i think last week the judge threw out the suit and said uh you have 20 days to refile the motion with more facts and i yeah, have yeah i haven't examined the original motion but uh i hear that the second motion will be pretty striking but okay. i don't really have first-hand knowledge of it so i don't want to okay. speak point to it so, so what about violence in general? Kind of, there's a bigger picture in, in schools. That is, school shootings that was, you know, were, you know, shocked the nation in Columbine in 1999, Sandy Hook in 2012, then Parkland in 2017, and you know, to some, this is, uh, you know, the shootings get the headlines, but in general, there's a coarsening in the American culture which includes schools to a more violent place, a less empathetic place, a, a place that's just, uh, I don't know, more bullying and more just, uh, um, uh, well, awful, 
in terms of awful behavior on the part of human beings to each other. I mean, what what is your view of why schools are so much worse? I think that there are a couple of uh, a couple of things going on. One is the issue that I identify, which is that the power of teachers to assert moral authority over the classroom is being systematically hamstrung. And so if kids decide to bully each other, decide to threaten each other, decide to be uh, excessively mean to the board, to, to the edges of violence, and sometimes even violent with each other, that's not something that a teacher feels empowered anymore to police. So that's one side of it. I also, this is, you know, taking my policy hat off and just being a, you know, speculative. A pundit, you know, yes. Pundit. Uh, I think that Social critic. I think if technology has a lot to do with it. I think that, you know, a lot of children's social lives are entirely mediated by electronics that just kind of uh, leads to, to coarser, less nuanced, less human relations between people, between children. We're on with Max Eden of the Manhattan Institute, author of the new book, Why Meadow Died. And finally, Max, I told someone that I know uh, who's in this world of education reform that you're going to be a guest on this podcast. And that person expressed concern. And I, and I wanted to get to, here's an area where I think I'm more like you, Max, but I want to tell you what the concern was, that some consider you uh, a provocateur, that you engage in Twitter battles with both your informed critics and the Twitter trolls, you know, you give it back. You, you, today, you tweeted to someone, quote, my name is, insert person's name, I'm not going to read that part, I attacked someone's motivations whom I've never met based on work I've never read, unquote. That's what you sound like. That's that's what, okay, so th those words were just written by you mocking someone for attacking a book they hadn't fully read. After having after having called me a racist, you know, okay. I, I don't I don't really let people just call me a racist. I think that uh, a lot of education policy conversations proceed by individuals calling people racist and then preventing there from being any actual debate. So I have a, a pretty strict policy to punch back twice as hard when somebody calls me a racist or yeah, yeah. Well, I you know, and I I got to tell you. So again, I said I'm I think I'm more like you like this, but I do I go back and forth. Maybe you do too on the question of sort of high-mindedness versus punching the bully in the face, you know, on social media. And you know, uh, along with the standing up to the bully in the schoolyard metaphor, there's the never wrestle with a pig, you both get dirty and the pig likes it metaphor. Uh, and so I just have you how, to what degree do you weigh this question? I mean, I think about it all the time online. I again, I sort of yo-yo. I think back and forth between my, and sometimes I regret later my, uh, you know, uh, engaging with people who I think need to be punched back, the bullies who need to be punched in the face. But then other times, I then I am doing it again. So what are what are your thoughts on like when it makes sense to bitterly engage online? And I know you mentioned being called a racist as one sort of, you know, metric for when it's a green light that, but. Uh, do you go back and forth? Do you later say, gee, I wish I wouldn't have tweeted that? Uh, sometimes, uh, but I, I tend to think that it, it, it comes down to a question of you know, the degree to which persuasion is possible and what the purpose of these debates really are, right? I mean, I will, I will say the individual's name, uh, Kevin Carey, who quite frequently trolls me, who is 
theoretically respected person at a theoretically not hard left think tank, the New America Foundation. And uh, I don't believe that it is proper for somebody in that role to proceed in arguments about things that he hasn't read or studied simply by calling his interlocutor a racist. And I don't believe that in such a case persuasion is possible. And I think the proper response to that uh, is to try to delegitimize. And I think that uh, people like him and institutions like his, as he represents them, uh, need to be delegitimized in the public discourse for uh, the middle to be persuaded of something that the pundits never will be. You know, when I was a kid, uh, John McEnroe and Bjorn Borg were the two tennis stars at the time, and people were shocked by John McEnroe's, you know, crudity and the coarseness, and, and the, you know, they... They praised Bjorn Borg for his diplomacy and sophistication. And I was always a McEnroe fan. Just, you know, so I, was, <laughs> I like the I like punching back often. Uh, is it, so normally this is where we'd wrap the interview and move on. But normally our, my co-host, Karen, and I would then discuss the tweet of the week and the commentary of the week. Max, how about would you mind staying on? And I'll I'll tell you the tweet of the week and the commentary of the week. You can give me your thoughts. I'd be happy to. All right. The commentary of the week we picked was from citizen Chris Stewart of Education Post, he wrote a commentary called Goodbye, Mr. Booker. And I don't know if you're following this, Max. I, I'm springing this on you, but uh, Cory Booker recently flipped, officially flipped on private school choice, uh, you know, after having spent years defending it, praising it. In fact, in, in impassioned speeches, in fact, talking about it's how it saved and changed the lives of people around him. Um, anyway, in this Goodbye, Mr. Booker uh, commentary, uh, Stuart writes, brah, this is shameful. You look like Mr. Bojangles tap dancing on the sun while the American Federation of Teachers shoot bullets at your feet. So I don't know if you've been watching the the primaries, uh, the Democrat debates and whatnot, uh, uh, Max Eden, uh, but uh, Cory, Cory Booker was the one person to kind of say, I uh, at least expanded good charter schools in Newark as well as shutting down bad schools. But uh, do you have any thoughts on Cory Booker? Yeah, I mean, I think he's he's proof positive that the Democrats, the left, will have always been and will always be uh, antipathetic to school choice. I mean, he was the one that was held up as like, oh, look, there might be some Democrat that isn't totally against school choice. And as soon as it becomes politically inconvenient for him, he drops it. And uh, I think it's entirely unsurprising, a reflection of kind of where the left is, where the Democrat Party is. And uh, I, you know, respect Chris Stewart. I think that there's a, there was, it was always going to be this way. It was always going to end up this way Cory Booker was because that's the, the party that belongs to and the ideology to which he adheres. And for the tweet of the week, this, uh, well, it indirectly comes from the U.S. Department of Education that issued a report on school choice this week. Uh, it was the National Center for Education Statistics, part of the U.S. DOE. And Choice Media tweeted out a map of the U.S. with percentages of charter school enrollment by state. So you can pick up that map and you can see numbers ranging from 17 percent in Arizona well, to a whole bunch of states that have zero charter schools uh, as of today, like Kentucky, West Virginia, Nebraska, you know, even Vermont. Zero charter schools in those places. Big, pretty big disparity, but 6% overall. So I guess I'll just, for the last question, I'll throw that to you, uh, Max. Uh, the charter footprint of, uh, I don't know, some places it's, you know, gee, Colorado, Utah, Florida, and Louisiana, double-digit percentages for all of those places. 
Yeah, and all of those, all of those, uh, <clears throat> all of those states have more lax regulatory charter environments of the kind that the National Alliance for Charter School Authorizers is trying to change. Uh, so you, you know, it's not a mistake that school that states with looser charter laws have more kids in charter schools. And I think that when it comes to performance between states, there's not that much of a discernible difference. In some ways, it appears that. Uh, the higher charter percentage states, the looser charter law states do better. So I think that it's very useful to see this breakdown because it pushes back upon one argument that's been gaining ever more currency in school choice, which is that we need choice, but it has to be high quality choice with quality defined as uh, whatever kind of the self-anointed regulators decide <laughs> to say quality means. Right, exactly. Generally, like if it doesn't threaten them, then it so it might be okay quality. But uh, anything that threatens my job is not quality. I think that's the definition. He is Max Eden, author of Why Meadow Died and Manhattan Institute Scholar. You can find him on Twitter at, at MaxEden99. And Max, thanks so much. Yeah, thanks for having me. Next week, we'll continue with the author guest theme. We'll have on Natalie Wexler, the author of The Knowledge Gap, The Hidden Cause of America's Broken Education System and How to Fix It. That's it for me. I'm Bob Bowden with Choice Media. And on behalf of the uh, on-assignment Kara Kendall of the Pioneer Institute, thanks for listening to The Learning Curve. We'll see you next week.